Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. In Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The artist Winfred Brembert died last March at the age of 75. In the years leading up to his death, Winfred Brembert shared his extraordinary life story with the writer, Professor Aaron I. Kelly, and the result is a book that is nothing short of astonishing. Chasing Me to My Grave, an artist's memoir of the Jim Crow South, is both beautiful and heartbreaking. Recently, the Carter Center and Presidential Library asked me to host a discussion about the book with the artist's widow, Patsy Rambert, and Aaron Kelly. I began with a quote from the preface to the book by a renowned social justice activist. In his foreword to the book, Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative said that the life of Winfred Rembert is ultimately about love, a love for justice, a love of community and family, and a love of art, that Winfred Rembert could transcend the repeated brutality he endured and still have room for love is stunning. Aaron, would you tell how this memoir unfolds? It's a story of Winfred's life. It's told from his perspective and in his voice, starting from early in his life, where he works in the cotton fields at the side of his great aunt, Lillian Rambert, who raised him. He was denied an education and eventually fled from the cotton fields to discover a black community in Cuthbert, Georgia. He gets involved in the civil rights movement, is arrested and um, nearly lynched and spends the next seven years on chain gangs. Surprisingly, he's released since his sentence was 27 years. He doesn't know why he was released, but he was. And he and Patsy, whom he had met while he was on the chain gang, married and eventually moved north to New Haven, Connecticut, where they raised a family. And as you pointed out earlier, Patsy encouraged Winfred 
to tell his life story on leather, to carve and tell his life story as picture on leather, which he did. Hmm. It is to your credit, Erin, that the memoir reads as though the artist is speaking directly to us. In fact, I felt like he was sitting next to me, talking to me about his past. How did you achieve that intimacy with the reader? I spent a lot of time with Winfred and Patsy in their home, listening, listening to what Winfred had to say, recording the conversation, going over what he had talked about with him, writing it up in his voice and having him correct it and go more deeply into the story. It was very important that it be Winfred's voice and that we take the time to tell the story. I told Winfred right at the beginning, we're gonna take as much time as you need to tell your story. So take time to get into the details and go where you want to with the story. And that's what we tried to do. Oh, I think it's admirable that he comes through and his voice, and you took that as told to roll very seriously about honoring his story. There's heartbreak at the very beginning when Winfred says his mother gave him away at three months old, and he talks about longing for the togetherness of families. Patsy, would you talk about the painting that appears early in this portion of the book, The Beginning? Well, Winford had a problem with being given away after he learned that he was given away. The thought entered his mind that he wasn't wanted. And that picture that he did was showing that he was being given away and he couldn't quite understand why his mother would give him away. And his father was nowhere to be seen. But as we went on in life, I tried to explain some things to him about that situation. It was an unsafe venture that his mother had entered into. And it's a long story, but she really didn't have a choice. She already had a child. And at the time, she was only 22. And Winfred just couldn't understand why would a mother give her child away? But she didn't have a choice. Men held the, the property rights, uh, all of the money, where she lived, her husband was in the army. And uh, at this time, I don't know the true story, but she was behind the eight ball, so to speak. She mm. had no choice. But that painting is so powerful. It's from a little boy's perspective, the feeling that he conveys. And he, I read he didn't want to touch it until he felt he could do a really good job. And that was at age 74. Yeah. It was no animosity that he held. It was just a pain of feeling unwanted. The paintings of Cottonfield Rose, titled The Overseer on Mama's Cotton Sack and Kink to Kink, are shocking in the ways they reveal how little had changed since slavery, but they depict scenes from the late 1940s and 50s. Would you talk about how Winfred conveys his impressions of cotton. 
Well, cotton is a beautiful thing. If you're not working in it, it's okay to look at. It's just not okay to work in. And he could see the beauty in all the things that he'd done. Even when it was a tragedy, he could find a way to bring the beauty from whatever he was doing because that's what he was about. Love and happiness is what he wanted. And he could uh, find a way to do it through his painting, his work. Oh my, but his description of working in the cotton fields is harrowing. I was appalled to read that women who gave birth in the cotton field were expected to return to work immediately. Many of them did. Many of them did. You find it hard to believe or understand, but they didn't have a choice. They didn't have a choice. Oh, I don't doubt that. I guess with almost every story that is told in the book, I'm astonished at the level of inhumanity, of the meanness. The subtitle says, A Memoir of the Jim Crow South. I think that this is a very important history book, as well as a memoir and beautiful art book. How old was Winfred when the plantation owner decided he was ready to pick cotton? About six. And what impact did that have on the little boy's life? He couldn't go to school. He couldn't really go to school and learn. Had he went to school, I don't, I don't know whether I would have met him. But um, he couldn't go to school. He didn't learn how to read and write. So that's where artistic kicked in. He could only put things together and make stuff from nothing. It gave him an outlet to do his frustration. He would make things out of nothing. He spent a little bit of time in school, but tried to hide that he couldn't read or write. Would you tell us about Miss Prather? Sure, I would love to. So Miss Prather was his teacher and she knew that he didn't know how to read and write. He had fallen so far behind because he could only go to school infrequently, maybe once or, once or twice a week. He had fallen behind and she knew this. So she didn't call on him to expose the fact in front of other children that he couldn't he couldn't read or write. Instead, she asked him to draw pictures for the bulletin board. She gave him some chores to do around the classroom to help out and contribute to the group. And then she invited him to her house after school to teach him how to read and write as best as she could communicate that given the small period of time that she had to work with him. And unfortunately, he didn't really learn to read and write until he went to prison. But her kindness was so important to him. It really rescued his sense of self-esteem. And she affirmed his talent as somebody who could draw and as somebody who had something to contribute to the classroom. It was very, very important. And when he remembers her in the book, when he told me about it, you know, it brought tears to his eyes. He was so, so grateful. She really was the first one to discover his artistic talent. I guess you could say that. That's right. There is a ghastly story about the plantation owner showing the six- or seven-year-old Winfred something in the barn. So when he was a little boy, five or six years old, 
the plantation owner called him into the barn and showed him some glass jars. And it took him a, a little while looking at these jars to understand that they had people's private parts in them, the private parts of, uh, from men that had been preserved in these jars. And he was showing them to Winfred in order to frighten him, to terrorize him and to intimidate him so that he would do what he was told. It was really traumatic. And he was so afraid, he didn't feel that he could tell anyone about it. He never talked about it as a child. Um, it was only until he was an adult that he, he shared that terrible memory. Oh, just unbelievable. In chapter three, Hamilton Avenue, Winfred tells us that for every person he paints, he has a movie about them in his head. I love this. What can you tell us about his cinematic approach to painting? Oh, well, he would talk about it as if he was reliving it all over again. And he would get so excited when he would be talking about it. He really, really could see himself there in his mind. He could see himself replaying those scenes and that he drew. And he remembered the people so well and remembered the different things that they did. Some stood out more than others, but he really liked it. Papa Screwball oh, and that was a good one. Black Master's Son and the characters that he said, you know what, Dennis would have a ball with some of these people I know. So he got a kick out of it. It was like a movie for him. Yeah, he developed a character study for each of the people he painted. Aaron, when he was speaking with you about this, what was your response to the movie in his head? Well, I was blown away by somebody that had such a vivid and detailed memory. He would close his eyes, he would start to describe, you know, his journey back into the past in his mind and these characters. And then he would become so animated because he was talking about members of the black community who had helped him, who he had befriended him. And he was just so joyous. His memories of these people who he created works of art about much later in his life were so important to him. His whole life, I think, including in prison to have these memories that he could retreat to and people who comforted him, people who were on his side that could help to sustain him. It was very important, I think, for his whole life. And he was just joyous in describing some of these local characters, how they danced in the juke joint and they played pool and did all kinds of crazy things. Actually, I wondered about making his memoir into a narrative film. I know there have been two documentaries, but this is the stuff of which fantastic movies are made in the right hands. It's so visual, and there's so many changes in the book. There's so many different episodes. It's so exciting. I think it would make an amazing narrative film. The scenes, the artwork, his memories, the characters, his love story with Patsy, his disappointed love story with his mother. I mean, there are just so many interesting themes in addition to, you know, just the the kind of brutality of his prison experience and his attempt to put himself back together, his sense of self-esteem after having spent those years in prison. It's so rich. It really is. Among 
his most exciting works, I think, are those you were referencing, Patsy, Winfrey's pictures of the juke joints, the music clubs, and places on Hamilton Avenue in his hometown of Cuthbert, Georgia. There are eight of these illustrations in chapter three, and each is a masterpiece. How does he achieve the vitality that comes through in those scenes? When he do these pictures, he's doing them from a point of love. And it's his soul that he's pouring out. And it's a cry for help. The way I look at some of his work, it's a cry for help, for humanity to come back full force. And when you said like a, a movie, he's trying to reach people. He's trying to reach them in a way, even though these are hard times, he made it beautiful for you to look at. He captured that. That's his soul that he's putting on those canvases. Patsy Rembert and author Aaron I. Kelly. In a moment, we'll return with more of our conversation about Winfred Rembert and the new book, Chasing Me to My Grave, an artist's memoir of the Jim Crow South. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. If you are just joining us, I've been speaking with the author Aaron I. Kelly and Patsy Rembert about Chasing Me to My Grave, an artist's memoir of the Jim Crow South. The book details the extraordinary life of Georgia-born artist Winfred Rembert. Patsy, the daily indignity and humiliation of black people's lives in Cuthbert is told and illustrated in the chapter The Everyday Lie. Unimaginable horrors that were regular occurrences. I think the least violent act we read about in that chapter, the least physically violent, it was psychologically abusive, was the laughing barrel. Would you describe it? Oh boy, that's a humiliation, a way to put a black man in his place, so to speak, or put him down, or see how much punishment, how much humiliation you can put on a person 
and nothing be done about it. There's no one to tell. Do whatever you want. And he want people to know that these things happen not in slavery time, but now. They happened then in the 60s, in the 70s. It's an uphill battle with an anvil on your back, trying to pull yourself up and someone's repeatedly stepping on you, pushing you back down. He was trying to illustrate that that's a pain that's unbearable to talk about, but yet and still you live through it. And he wanted people to know that that was a price that's been paid for the freedom that we so casually live now. That was a price that was paid. He did a picture, I don't know whether you've seen it, the struggle. And everybody in that picture is some kind of famous person. But he wanted them to know that somebody was abused and mistreated for them to get to that spot, to be able to struggle. And they still have their struggle even today. It's still a struggle. So maybe just to fill out the picture of the laughing barrel a little bit so people can understand the, you know, the scenario. There were whites in the town square who would hang out and they had a big barrel that they stood next to. And when blacks walked through the square, they would tell jokes about them, try to humiliate them, and then require them to stick their head in the barrel and laugh as a way of a form of entertainment for the whites that were hanging out there. So the painting shows this barrel with a few whites around it, a bunch, you know, other members of the community and a black man with his head sticking in the barrel. Unreal. When Fred became interested in the civil rights movement in 1962, I believe, would you please explain what happened during and after the march in which he participated? Well, he, he was the type of person who wanted to do something. He wanted to be a part of something that was important. And what he told me, how he got involved, he had just got out of the army. He got off the bus in Albany, Georgia. And he saw this crowd of people getting ready to go to America's. Well, America's is where his mother lived. So he thought, well, I'll join these group of people who were going to protest about a certain person who had shot into a crowd. Charlie Hopkins had shot into a crowd of white people and shot one. Uh, I think maybe it might have killed him. And he wanted to uh, show his support for him. So in the meantime, he put her up. His clothes might be still there in the, in the uh, bus station terminal. He put him in the locker and got on the bus, civil rights bus. He attended... In, in my understanding, more than one demonstration in Americas. And the last one was the most violent. There were a big crowd of protesters marching down to the main street and the officials and unofficial supporters of the officials came with guns and dogs and fire hoses and attacked the demonstrators and somebody fired a gun. There was mayhem, people were running. And Winford ran down an alley. Um, he knew Americas because as Patsy mentioned, his mother was from the area. He had spent time in Americas. And when he went down this alley and turned around, he saw two white men with shotguns coming in his direction. Um, and he said, you know, they, they were serious. They weren't there to hunt squirrels. And he saw a car with the keys in it 
on the side of the street. He jumped in the car and he stole it. He drove back to Cuthbert to get away and was subsequently arrested. They held him in jail for almost two years. It was a year and a half for sure. And that's why he stuffed the uh, commode and, and had it to flood over. Now, by doing this, he made the deputy sheriff upset. And the deputy sheriff came into the cell and began to uh, beat him and kick him. And uh, he fought back, physically fought him back and took the gun and escaped from the jail. So after he escaped, he went to the home of some people that he knew asking for their help. And apparently out of fear, they called the police. So the, the sheriff and other law enforcement officers came to the house where he was, to his surprise, and busted down the door and beat him for some time, um, both at the house and back at the police station. And then later on in the evening, a mob gathered and they drove him outside of town to the woods where um, they pulled off his clothes and strung him up in a tree by his feet. He thought he was going to be killed and he was pretty badly wounded, but not killed. There was someone who intervened and said that they shouldn't kill him. They had better uses for him and they should take him back to jail. He painted scenes of his torture by these thugs, his near lynching, and another picture called Almost Me. Patsy, when was he able to tell you about these events? We had been married over five years, and he would have nightmares. And he would wake up in a sweat of a rage, and I thought it was from the army. And finally one day he said, I'm going to tell you why I wake up this way and what's going on. And he told me that he was reliving things that had happened to him. And when he started to explain, he said, you're not going to believe me. I said, I believe whatever you tell me. He said, you're not going to believe me. His whole thing was he was not going to be believing if he told what happened to him. If he sat down and explained things that went on, nobody would believe it. So he began to tell me some of the things that happened to him. And me being from the South, this was something that was not far-fetched for me to believe because I was witnessed some things myself. So when he would tell me these stories and they stayed in the back of my mind while he was having such a hard time, I thought maybe that if he actually told someone other than me that it would uh, help him in some way. But he was afraid that people would think he was lying. So he just didn't venture out until, until we met. It was some years later that we were sitting out here to Sharon and Phil McBlain's house that he started just telling things that had happened to him that seemed unbelievable, but they happened. Got documentation, some of the people that wasn't too afraid to talk about it, did to validate what he had to say. And that dual process of telling the stories to you and your friends, the McBlains, whom you met in 1996, I think? Yes, it was in the 90s, let's just say the 90s. So on the one hand, it was healthy for him to be able to get it all out 
and to paint the scenes, but it also stirred up tremendous trauma. And in fact, he experienced more of what you described. He was diagnosed with PTSD. Fortunately, he was treated for it. But it was necessary for him to do what he'd done. It was necessary not only for him, but for a lot of more Black people that come from the South was afraid to talk about the punishment and the horror that they suffered. Him telling this story about himself, he actually told the story of a lot of more Black people, Black men who were afraid to talk about it. His whole thing was, if I do this, what is going to be the backlash? That was his word he used, backlash, for me telling my story. He still had a fear that it was going to hurt some people and give some people strength to talk about because he was not the only one that suffered in this manner. But he is the only one so far from that little town decided to tell what happened and how life was. And that life that he lived was for a lot of young Black men. Yes. The chapter Finding Patsy contains a beautiful love story, one we can see still lives on in you. I was hoping you would tell us how you met and about your unusual courtship. Erin, would you do me the honors? It's hard for me to talk about it. I get all mushy with it. <laughs> so Winfred was working on the road in the chain gang, repairing the road, building bridges and things like that in the community. And there was a bridge that had been washed out near Patsy's house. And he was there fixing the bridge and stopped at her house to ask for a glass of water together with one of the, the people that he was working with. And Patsy was in the yard washing clothes. And that was the first time he had a chance to meet her, although he had seen her before. Isn't that right, Patsy? Yes, he had seen me before. <laughs> and I ran from him. <laughs> and I went in the house and I told my dad that there was some prisoners in the yard. And my daddy came to the door with his shotgun and said, what do you boys want? He said, we just want some water. We're working on a bridge down here to help get y'all in and out. And my mother came and looked over my dad's shoulder and said, hey, you boys working down there? He said, yes, ma'am, we sure are. She said, well, come up here at 12 and I'll have dinner for you. So now I got a chance to look at him and he got a chance to look at me. <laughs> so he started to uh, stop my school bus. And he would put a whole lot of dirt because he used one of those heavy equipment machines. And he would put a whole lot of dirt in the road. The bus, school bus couldn't get by. And he would get down off his machine. He said, write me, girl. Come on, write me. Write me, girl. So I never would write him. But finally, he wrote me. And that started the romance. After reading his letters, and I started sneaking. I wasn't permitted. But my grandmother lived up the street from the camp. So I would go over to her house on Sundays, comb her hair, and ask, can I go to the store? Then I'd cut across the field and come down to the road and go up to the camp to see him. She never got a cold soda. <laughs> Patsy saved those letters over all the years, and she shared them with me. I read them, and we included a couple of them in Chasing Me to My Grave. They were just beautiful, and that was part of your love story. Wasn't it not, Patsy? Yes, he was just, 
even then to me, he was magnificent. I used to watch him just to see him. I just wanted to see him. I couldn't talk to him all the time, but it was just something about him that charmed me. How did he win over your parents? I mean, here they were distrustful. How did he win them over? He wrote a letter. After they caught me, they told me I couldn't see him no more and I couldn't go out there. And uh, he wrote a letter and my father intercepted the letter. And he read, he fooled me. I thought he was reading the Bible and he was reading the letter. <laughs> and after he got through reading the letter, he said, girl, put on some clothes. I didn't know what he was talking about. He said, make yourself look presentable. My mother took off her apron in the kitchen. She stopped cooking and they got in the car and took me to see him from one letter that he wrote that they read. And my father said, I've got to meet him now to see if he mean any of these things he's saying. He won him over with kindness and with an understanding that he meant me no harm. He talked about your mother being a gourmet cook oh. and a beauty and quite, quite an interesting lady. I love his portrait of her. And he mentions that she only wanted to be called Sugar Cane. That was her nickname. How did he portray her? That's a picture of her. She was really a stunning woman. And I wanted to be her. I just didn't want to be like her. I wanted to be her because she had such a way about herself that made you feel like she was important all the time. She was important. She didn't dress like that all the time, but when she did dress, you took notice. You would have thought that was his mother, not mine. They got to be such good friends. He just, he had that charm that he charmed her and my father. Well, both the description and the painting are gorgeous. So you met the McBlains in the early 90s. Why did that mark a turning point in your lives? Well, I like to say the Lord put them in my path to help guide us, help open doors for us, help us to raise our children. They also was there for moral support. When things got tough, they helped us out always, always. I, I just thank God that I met them. Would you tell us about Winfred's first show, how it came about? So Phil McBlain had encouraged Winfred to try out his talent as an artist after Winfred had carved and dyed a small painting and given it to Phil McBlain. Phil was very impressed by it, ended up selling it and giving the money to Winfred and um, bought Winfred all this leather and tools and said, try to do some stories, you know, on, on leather, Tell, do some more pictures. This is really good stuff. And Patsy was encouraging Winfred to do stories of a personal nature on leather to depict his own memories and scenes from his life. So with Phil and Patsy's support, Winfred began to carve and tool leather and dye it um, and created a number of stunning early paintings that were recognized by a local person who supported artists and decided to host a small show in New Haven to introduce Winfred to the community and to recognize his talent. That was really the beginning. And do you want to talk about what happened at that show, Patsy? There was a kind of interesting moment uh, when Winfred overheard one of the people at the show talking about the paintings. 
he was surprised that everybody was looking at the work that he did of his memory and not of the Martin Luther King and the people that he had drew of prominence. So Wilbert was talking to me and this white guy heard him ask me why was they looking at his pictures of people they don't know that's not famous. And the guy told him, we want what's in your head. We want to see what you do, what you know. We can get those pictures anywhere. And that changed his view right then. Wimpert was so astounded that here this white man was interested in scenes of ordinary people in Cuthbert, Georgia, you know, shooting pool or um, dancing rather than somebody who was famous. But he got it. He really got it when the man said it. Because I had been after him for years to do things like that, but he, he just didn't think anyone would be interested. He was going to buy my work. <laughs> so it turned into that Jock Reynolds got an opportunity to see Wimple's work and then put on a bigger show for him. And that's what got the notoriety when Jock Reynolds uh, got Yale to uh, put an art show on for him. And it lasted a month and then he had to redo it. I think it was three shows they did. But with all of the honor, some glamorous parties and receptions in New York, Winford's homecoming in Cuthbert, Georgia, was the most meaningful to him. The validation of coming back as a hero and having risen above all of the sadness that had come his way. It was his feeling. He left and changed, and he come back victorious. That was a release of that he was somebody. When he come back to that particular show that was in America's where he got beat, shot at, and he left there and went to Cuspid. And he left Georgia and changed, and he come back victorious. I think that was what that show meant to him. Oh, not only did he come back victorious, but he was honored at a dinner that was commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Americas movement, which had started in 1963. So this is 2013. And here he had dinner with Jimmy and Rosalind Carter and Patsy was there. It was such a thrill as far as I understood from what Winfred had to say about it, that it was this remarkable homecoming. He was so overwhelmed by the fact that he was sitting at the table <laughs> with the former president and his wife. And Rosalind really loved his work. Really, really loved it. Patsy Rambert, Aaron Kelly. This book is extraordinary and it has been such an honor to talk with you both. Thank you. Oh, it's been such an honor to be here. And to introduce the book through the Carter Library is very special. And I wish Winfred were here to enjoy that. He would have loved it. Yes, this was a privilege. Professor Kelly's collaboration with Winfred Rembert is Chasing Me to My Grave, an artist's memoir of the Jim Crow South. You can learn more about the book and see some of the artwork on our website wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll listen back to my interview with the director, Dorisha Kai. Her film, Shavella, 
explores the life of a sensational Mexican singer known as the rough voice of tenderness, Chavela Vargas. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Costa Rican-born Mexican singer Chavela Vargas was an intense performer who regularly brought audiences to tears, a free spirit known to jump on stage wearing pants, a poncho, and a pistol. And she drank tequila while boldly singing love songs to women. Unheard of behavior for a woman in Mexico in the 1950s. The documentary Chavela is streaming now on Amazon Prime. When the film was released a few years ago, I spoke with the co-director, Derisha Kai. Here, she explains how Chavela began her singing career. Chavela decided very young that even though she didn't have a pretty voice, she was going to be a singer. <laughs> so okay. one thing we know about Chavela, and um, we knew it before we even started the film, but after doing it, we know it very well, is that once she set her mind to something, she accomplished it. So she came, when she, she ran away from home, from Costa Rica, and was, um, when she got to Mexico, she lived on the streets. She uh, had a maid service, she babysat kids, and she sang. She sang wherever she could. Um, and people told her she sounded terrible, but she didn't care. <laughs> and, and finally, she finally got a break from, we think maybe one of her girlfriends, her um, husband ran the national radio program, and the girlfriend talked her boyfriend or her husband, I'm not sure which one he was, into giving Chavela a shot. And that's how she got started. <laughs> and the rest is history. Exactly. You co-directed this documentary with Catherine Gund, and you're both Americans, so what drew you to making this film about this particular woman? I've always liked, uh, can I say badass? <laughs> you can say it. I've always loved badass people. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, Chavela was the ultimate badass. She just lived life on her terms, in her way, and was true to herself despite enormous odds. You know, everything was stacked against this woman. She was a lesbian. She was a Hispanic woman. She was poor and uneducated. She had an addiction problem. She, you couldn't be more of an outsider at the time. She was born in 1919. So to be all those things and to claim those things. I mean, of course, she wasn't openly gay at the time because you just didn't say those kind of things, you know. But she never pretended. She never married a man. She never dressed like a woman. You know, she just was herself. And that, to me, is just so uh, inspiring. Yeah. But the way the film got started is that Catherine was lucky enough to meet Chavela. I never met her. She was dead when we started the project. She died in 2012. But Catherine um, 
was very active in the ACT UP movement in New York and carried a camera with her because she documented everything. And a bunch of her friends, I think three, two or three of her friends had passed away from AIDS and she just had to get away. So she escaped to Mexico. And while she was there, um, she got involved with a woman and that woman's circle, they all loved Chavela. And Chavela, after 12 years of alcoholism, was making a comeback. And so they dragged Catherine. They said, you have to come see this amazing woman. You know, we all love her. You're going to love her. And she did. And Catherine, luckily, had her camera, asked Chavela if she could shoot her performance, and then did an interview with her, after which Chavela asked Catherine and all these women back to her house to do another interview. So Catherine said on that footage, I think she had planned to make a film with it, and it just never came to fruition. Um, and then she kind of, you know, forgot about it. I'm not forgot, but you know how things just sort of go on the back burner. And then she and I were talking about ma- the, making a film together. And she said, oh, you know, I have this footage. You should take a look at it. You might like her. this woman. She has this rough, crazy voice. And she sings this song like, touch me here, Macarena, touch me there. And I thought, okay, let's look at it. <laughs> and as soon as I saw her, I knew that she was someone special and I wanted to make a film about her. Well, which of her songs should we hear first? Um, we're going to play the older one, right? The one of the, her early songs. Okay. Um, and what's it called? No. No te importe saber. No te importa saber, which means um, you don't want to know. Okay. <laughs> More or less. We, then we don't we won't tell you. But we're gonna play the song. Comprendo me dice. ¿Cómo es que siento este amor tan vehemente? Solo por ti no comprendes que pueda quererte con todas las fuerzas del alma. voice. I don't hear where the bad voice well, is. This is. Yeah, this is young Chavela before she started partying really hard, drinking really hard, smoking cigars, drinking tequila, hanging out all night. Um, she and Jose Alfredo Jimenez, who was the most prolific, well-known composer in Mexico, whose songs she made, she took them and made them her own. Um, they would go into a bar on Friday and come out on Monday. Oh, my. So after that, her voice cracked, you know, um, and it was it was it's a very, very different voice. That's a young, lighter voice. You know, it got deeper. It got raspy. And it just had much, much, much more character when she was older. Well, of her of the two examples we have from when she's older, 
which should we hear next? Let's hear Volver, Volver. This is a classic Mexican song. Everybody sings this song, but nobody sings it like Chabela. Vamos a cantar todos juntos ahora. Este amor apasionado anda todo al por volver. Voy camino a la locura, aunque todo me tortura, sé querer agua. Nos dejamos hace tiempo, pero se llegó el momento de perder. Tú tenías mucha razón, le hago caso al corazón y me muero por volver. She went through a very dark time later in life. What precipitated that? Um, Chavela had some unresolved issues from her childhood. Her parents were very, you know, she was different from very, very young. And it was very apparent. And she wasn't able to hide it or dissimulate in any kind of way. And so, you know, um, at that point, Costa Rica was a very provincial, uh, very conservative, very Catholic country. And they, in the story, in the film, Marcela Rodriguez tells a story of of how um, Chavela came into the church one day and the priest said, get that girl out of here. She's not welcome. Because... um, she was so different, you know, and it was so clear that she was going to be a lesbian, I think, from a very early age. Her parents rejected her. So she was scarred, you know. She was not able to form strong emotional attachments. She was one of those people that if you got too close, she would push you away, you know. And also she, so so a lot of that I think she buried in drinking and having fun. And, and she and, like I said, she and Jose Alfredo would start drinking and, and just drink till they drop. They literally uh, had an experience where they were drinking with a friend and he left the bar in an ambulance. Oh my goodness. Well, what what eventually brought her out of her alcoholism and took her back? Well, there's a couple of stories about that. One is that <laughs> she was cured by shamans that a friend took her to some shamans and they not only cured her, but they recognized her as a shaman. They initiated her and gave her the name La Cupaima. The other story is that her lover, who was in the film, Alicia Elena Perez Duarte Noronha, told her, if you don't stop drinking, I'm going to break up with you. You'll never see me and my children again. Mm -hmm. And Chavela was really in love with her. And so, according to Alicia, she stopped cold turkey. But that in and of itself has problems. You know, there's this term we have called dry drunk, right? So Uh. if you don't actually deal with the emotional reasons why you were drinking or the physiological effects, they continue to affect you. And I think that for Chavela, they, they continue to the end of her life in many different ways. Dorish, what did you get out of your experience of going from knowing nothing about Chavela 
to immersing yourself in her life? It was such a beautiful journey to learn about this amazing, incredible uh, icon and pioneer and rebel and outlaw and just to be inspired by the example that she set, you know. She officially came out at the age of 81. Oh <laughs> Everybody <laughs> knew she was a lesbian. Never too late. <laughs> but that is it. That is the thing that I take away the most from Chavela is that it's never too late. She made her comeback at the age of 71. And from the age of 71 until she died at 93, she went on to the best fame ever. She won a Lifetime Grammy. She sold out Carnegie Hall. She was in a movie with Selma Hayek about Frida Kahlo. I mean, she just did the thing, okay, in a badass way. <laughs> Director Dorisha Kai, her film Shavella is streaming now on Amazon Prime. You can learn more on the film's website, shavellavargasfilm.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the late Congressman John Lewis's longtime aide and writing partner, Andrew Iden, shares the story behind their graphic book, Run. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. City Lights senior producer is Kim Trobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. And we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.